This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This is CT Media. Oh, folks, welcome to Being Human. I'm Steve Cuss, fellow human. This is my wife, Lisa Cuss. Hey, everyone. Also a fellow human. So here we are, plural mm-hmm. humans together. Lisa has been on the previous podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety, a number of times. So for those of you who are newer, this mm-hmm. is just going to be an episode much like the very first Being Human episode where we kind of hear your journey. The goal is that people find themselves in in our journey. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We begin by lighting the candle. I'm going to light it if you have anything you want to share as I light. Yeah. We are lighting this candle to remember the presence and the power of God in the form of the Father, in the form of the Son, and the form of His Holy Spirit into our lives. And so we just want to take a moment to take in a deep breath and to recognize that as we begin. You know, what I also think is the reality of prayer Mm. is I'm trying to center on God and I'm also making a shopping list. I need to buy a new lighter. Isn't that what prayer is like? Yes, that we still have floods of thoughts that come into our minds that we have to notice and then let go of and then come back to God. Notice, let go, come back to God. It's a journey. I used to get frustrated and then I would anxiously try to clear my mind. Mm -hmm. I found it much helpful just to let those thoughts come and go. Yeah as I connect to God. So so just the candle to invite you to relax into God's presence. A lot of what being human is about is just having this one episode a week where you can catch your breath and you can really think about your reactivity, your triggers, the things that you have a tight grip on, the things that might have a tight grip on you, and just do that great exchange. Lisa, you are a therapist. You work with people with trauma, with attachment. Tell us a bit about your therapy and what you do and the kinds of things you specialize in. Yeah. So I've been a therapist now for six years and work with actually all ages and really have just had the Lord bring in my way people who are working through trauma, whether that is one-time incidents or whether that's complex trauma, which is multiple experiences that are kind of all compounded on top of each other. I work with people who are not believers. I work with people who are believers. And so sometimes it's just a place to do a lot of integration of faith. Yeah, looking through disillusionment that we have. Yeah, we just do a lot of work to unburden, I think, what people feel like they're coming in with. Mm. I was fascinated as your husband watching you do this training. Mm. I think I always assumed that therapy is always coming in and talking Mm-hmm. But sometimes when someone has trauma, you have them do weird things. <laughs> what are some of the weird things you have people, and not just you, but 
people who do trauma work. Oh, no, it's true. Like I name it all the time with people. Yeah. To be fair, I've also been a client myself, right? Uh-huh. And I'm not doing anything that I haven't experienced myself. But we just have to name, it feels weird. And the reason why is because, you know, sometimes there's a couple approaches. There's top-down approach as we work through issues, which is so helpful. Mm. And that's when we're in a place where we can actually think about the way we think or we can think about the way we feel. And that by going top-down and starting with the brain and our thoughts, that we come to a sense of freedom and we can do some healthy reframing. And it's fantastic. Mm. The reality of trauma is that it's a perceived experience where we feel like the tools that we have to cope with what we have experienced have been exhausted. And then what we need is actually beyond the tools that we have. And so those experiences and meaning made get stuck in our bodies. If something's stuck in our bodies, we can think as much as we want about what we want to do to change or to work through. But oftentimes people come in and say, why is it like, I know I want to do this, but then I find myself doing something else. And the reality is, is that when these meanings that we've made that have a negative hold on us are stuck in our bodies, Mm -hmm. then no matter what we think, our body wins. Yeah, we can't think our way to freedom. Mm -mm. So we need then a bodily experience, which is what people who are trained in trauma techniques Absolutely. They might it have works you like with the body. Tapping your shoulders back and forth. Yeah. Or... So we can talk about more of those later, but anytime you can do something like you're referring to EMDR, mm. which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Anytime we can work with like our internal family systems, it's on the inside. We're also working with the body sensations, what's being held in our body, targeting those and integrating them so that we can. Let it all get out. And also there's a whole part of being able to be compassionate toward ourselves and to our bodies. And then there's like a new installation of hope and a reframing that can happen. And it can look a variety of different ways. But it's interesting. When I first started this, I was scared to death of the stories that I might hear. I, don't I remember, know if you remember that. that. Yeah. And it was one of the things that almost kept me from going into this field. And then I just had this experience of usually painful, right? Where you realize God is the ultimate healer, whether somebody believes in him or not. He is over time and timing with healing. And I am one of his vessels in the process. And then I think just as I experience working with people again and again and again, Observing and witnessing their healing is like reciprocating. Like Mm. I am also, there's some healing that happens in me. There's some strengthening that happens in me. And it's like this synergetic thing that's happening in the room. Super powerful. So I love what I do. Do you ever pay your clients for those situations? (laughs) Yeah. When your client is doing the work, you're like, I need to pay you. I actually haven't, but I've thought about it. Yeah. 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 Okay, so the whole broad idea of being human, I'm a theology nerd. At the end of the day, I'm a pastor that loves to study the Bible. Mm-hmm. But then I discovered in chaplaincy this way of understanding life called systems theory. And I just found it so helpful for my faith and my relationships to integrate my theological belief and systems theory. You've been on a really similar journey mm-hmm. where you have discovered through some trauma tools, some different psychological theories 
a way to integrate as a human and also in your faith. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go back to the beginning, just let people get to know you a bit. Mm-hmm. What was life like when you were a kid? How, how did you grow up? Yeah. So Steve and I are both youngest, which doesn't happen often. Yeah. So the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the best. And then there's some real shots. We're a little like, disorganized at times. At times. We're yeah. a little disorganized. I'll, I'll say this. When banks introduced automatic bill pay online in what, the 90s? It's a lifesaver. That really helped us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I'm the youngest of two. I often say that in my mind's eye, I was not born in a hospital, even though I was. I was born into the Bethel Church of Christ, which is where my dad was the lead minister, the lead pastor, almost 35 years, I believe. So all of my childhood. I had an older brother, Scott, who I so, I mean, our childhood, we were so close. And I still have a huge respect and love for my brother. So I I was in a tight-knit family. Yeah. And a lot of my experiences as we look back, I'm like, was this family or was this church? Was this family? Because it was so intertwined. Yeah. We spent a lot of time in our church building. It was a church of about 350 people in a very small town of about 10,000. I mean, my parents, even today in retirement, are born pastors of people. If you want someone to walk beside you, you call my parents and everybody at our church knows it. They have a huge love for being there for people. So I got to witness that, you know, in childhood and then also in their retirement. You know, I kind of show up in some ways as an Enneagram 9. I take in a lot of what's going on around me and I don't love conflict. So when I take in things from people, I'm always, as a child, I was always looking for how is somebody looking at me? Are they looking at me as far as judgment? Are they looking at me with disapproval? Am I approved of? That was super important to me as a child. And when I perceived any dissatisfaction, it actually rocked me to my core So I learned at an early age, if I can get the approval of other people, then I'm okay. And it served me well. I remember by 10 years old, I would go to church early and would make sure to do my rounds. So I would visit the old, old man's class, talk to each one of them. Then I'd go to the 50-year-old class, which actually felt old to me. It's super young. Well, I think for you, 50 is still old. 50 is like right around the corner. I'm in my early 50s. Lisa is, shall we say, mid to upper 40s. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I would check in with them. I would go to the nursery. I wanted to say hello to each baby. I wanted to talk to each nursery worker. And as you can imagine, I got huge smiles, like huge accolades back. So some of that I think might have been pastor's kid feeling Mm. a little bit like in a fishbowl. The beauty of being known, also maybe the fear of being known, but also just my own strategy in life to figure out what I needed to be okay. Which when you attend is totally subconscious. You're not intentionally doing all of this. No, I figured it out. Yeah. And, you know, we've done four episodes of Being Human and obviously a lot more of the old podcast, but we are trying to help our audience discern when gifts are good. So like you visiting these Sunday school classes is wonderful. Yes. And also when you are bound by these good things. And the other thing that, I mean, I'm going to jump in and be a bit teachy, I guess, but we're trying to help everyone just really get clear on, even when I'm doing something in the name of the Lord, it might actually be more for me than for God. 
And that's tricky, but some of what you're describing is that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's why we bring up that story too. Mm. As children, we develop these strategies. I often call them these parts of us Mm. that help us figure out who we are and honestly help us thrive. But then as we grow up to be adults, as we, as our concept of God broadens, as we experience more, if we show up with these same parts and strategies in our driver's seat of our life, it absolutely bites us in the butt. Yeah. In one hand, we have such different childhoods. I was not raised in the church. You were raised in the very center of the church. Mm-hmm. It can be interesting, even with a loving church, this is my, I think, number one fear as a pastor, mm. that people, children were raised in our church still having to discover their own journey of grace. Somehow yes. we thought we were preaching and teaching grace but just with human development and the way you make meaning as a kid, you're, you're hearing as a kid legalism and conditional love. Mm-hmm. When would be a time in your life that you're like, oh, I really experienced the grace of God, the unconditional love of God? What would come to mind? Yeah. I mean, in childhood, I was very aware of my sin. I was very aware of Jesus as Savior and wanted so much to do right. Yeah. I think I experienced grace, I mean, experience grace from other people, but as far as from God, I don't know that I came to experience that in my core until I was in my late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, it's a more recent journey. Yeah. Yeah, which is also, I think, common for those who are our generation, our generation, not my generation. (laughs) We are uh, the same generation, just a decade apart. (laughs) (laughs) Raised in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. We were all kind of under this well-meaning legalism, I think, in some ways. And obviously some of our watchers and listeners, you might be thinking, not well-meaning in my context. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, lots and, of fundamentalism and, and control and even abuse. Yeah. But the story we're talking about is kind of a well-meaning situation. Let's fast forward. You married this bag of bones, and I'll never forget. I don't know what it was like for you. The last day of our honeymoon, you dropped me off to become a chaplain. I do a 28-hour overnight shift. I remember you praying over me. I had my little overnight bag. Mm. But what was that year of chaplaincy? I mean, in some ways, it was an intense year for you. First year of marriage, we were in a single-wide trailer. But, I was doing uh, teaching so much. We were trying to figure out. Yeah. What first comes to mind for me is we had no idea what we were getting into yeah. when you decided to do this chaplaincy internship. It was hard. You came home, especially in the first six months, absolutely undone. Yeah. For the first time in my life. For the first time. I really don't think I'd seen you rock to the core Mm. and you would come home undone by being forced to face behaviors in you, reactivity in you, thought processes, but also undone by just the directness of the group right. with which you were in. Right. They were very comfortable telling me what they saw about me. Yes. And I was so used to winning people over and charming them, and they were not impressed by my charm at all. Well, and I even grew up in the Midwest, yeah. and you're always nice yeah. about things, yeah, yeah. right? Being a Christian means you're nice. Yeah. And so I just remember it felt hard. And then I think at the six-month mark, there was a switch mm-hmm. There was actually something life-giving. You were finding some freedom in facing these things and in facing your assumptions. 
and in not knowing what to do, which I know has been a big deal for you over the years and for me too. Yeah. But definitely I think your engagement with this also is contagious. So it impacts me and what I begin to notice and what, you know, some of our values as well. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. The other thing, just on a purely lighter note that I remember is we had no money. Oh, gosh. I think my salary was $16,900. We would turn off heat at night. Well, I would turn off the water heater. You are very kind. Every night I would turn off the water heater. What was I thinking? There would be frost on our mirrors in the morning. Yeah. And (laughs) I don't know, seven out of 10 mornings, I'd remember to turn it on. Right? Yeah. Early marriage. Uh, let's go a bit further. We've been in ministry together for year, our whole marriage, mm-hmm. but it was 2005 was the first time we stepped into the lead role. Mm-hmm. I know for me, uh, going from being an associate pastor to the lead pastor was a colossal mm-hmm. increase in pressure that I put on myself. Mm-hmm. So I felt way more pressure inside, and then I felt way more pressure coming at me from others. Yes. And being a pastor's wife, you don't get off scot-free on that. We're both people pleasers. Yeah. Tell us about those early years there. Honestly, I think they were some of the most internally stressful of my life because I absorb a lot of what's going on around me. I think I was in a season then of stuffing what goes on in me and maybe even spiritualizing it too. Like I shouldn't feel the way I feel or I should be more mature by now or I should know how to handle this. You've taught me about spiritualizing. I wonder if we would just take a moment and explain it to people that might not be familiar with that. The intention is to see God and follow him Mm. and experiencing him. That's the intention. But we do it in a way in which we do not allow ourselves to be human. So like in that instance, if I can just acknowledge and get permission, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people's stories. There's people coming and going. There's some hurt. We've got young kids at home. We're trying to figure out how to raise two. You're trying to figure out how to do sermons every weekend and figure out how to meet expectations, not even desires, just expectations. Like there was just a lot to hold together so if we are spiritualizing, it's like you you forget or wipe away the whole reality of what all is being experienced and just move toward connection with God. You forget the process and want to just get to the end. 
I think because of my own childhood and assumptions about life, I don't generally know what I feel, even though I feel a lot. And then I don't believe I have permission to feel those feelings. Mm. I know, you know, I was raised in 1970s parenting. Others have it worse. You call it saliva parenting. So my my (laughs) mum particularly was a saliva-based parent where if I'd come in with a a knee that was bleeding, (laughs) she'd wipe it off with the saliva and get out there and play, you're fine. And again- There was some good in that. No harm, no foul. But definitely, I think the unspoken agreement for me was, uh, uh, you're, you don't have the right to see your feelings. Mm. So if I'd get my feelings hurt by a critic, for example, I would go into this spiritualization like, oh, you shouldn't. If you're a better pastor, you shouldn't. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. The story we tell ourselves. I'll just say briefly too. So we both jumped into this lead role, a scrappy, struggling young church plant. Actually, by the way, we're still at that church. We're no longer the lead pastor. And there. an incredible church plant. Incredible. As we well, came for the we, people. Yeah. But it was on the brink. It was touch and go for a while. And so we had all this internal pressure. We had this kind of the new thing of expectation from others. And then we had this onslaught of grief. Yes. Uh, we had a number of young, tragic death people who we were very close to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that really is linked to your journey to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd tell us the story about that one women's retreat. It feels like that was a big turning point mm. uh, for your emotional health. I've probably heard the voice of God audibly four or five times in my life, and this was one of them for sure. I have a, a mixed experience with women's retreats where it's like on one hand, how great to get away with women and have time to just be and to connect and to learn together and support each other. And I would carry into women's retreats some of my driving anxieties that would show up. I really want your approval and I really want and feel like I should be there for you in the best way possible, regardless of if that's what I'm called to do or not. And I think that's the important part of it. Is it also true that I'm a more aggressive personality and so when I'm leading, I'm making these decisions and you're more of a peacemaker? Is it also true that you're then carrying some of the angst of my leadership to represent it, whether you agree with it or not, for example? Oh, 100%. It's a huge piece of it. Yeah, and so that means carrying some of the decisions that I don't quite understand. So anyway, walking into this women's retreat, there were a couple of people in the church who were in conflict with you. And of course, I carry that as a we. I went into this one specifically wanting to connect with a certain individual and just check in on things and smooth over and had specifically chosen to room with this person. And so my first night, I end up talking to three women whom were just going through a really hard time in their life and felt like the church had not met their needs and were disappointed. Of course, I hear that and immediately take it in as, I have not met your needs, that you are disappointed with me. And then I go into my own little shame battle, right? That I'm not showing up as I should and all of this. So I'd actually grabbed a friend to pray with me, which is important. Like I was was trying to release that. And then I was walking back. This is fresh after prayer. (laughs) Walking back to my cabin ready to have this conversation with this woman that I just really wanted to smooth things over. And I sensed the Lord saying to me, Lisa, you are tired. Do not talk tonight. You need to go to bed. But I, who knows myself so well, right, says to God, don't worry about this, God. (laughs) God's worried. I've got this. So I go to the cabin, enter into this conversation. 
And it wasn't even a horrible conversation. The meaning that I made from it wrecked me on top of everything else. And so I'm in this cabin of women. It is time in every way for me to go to bed. I'm grieving, honestly, and I am crying myself to sleep. And it's in my sleep that God's voice gets a hold of me. And he said to me a couple of things. He was like, Lisa, I want you, first of all, to know I do not need you to rescue me. That sometimes I sense that you're trying to smooth things over so people will be okay with me. And I am quite capable, you know, with my reputation. And then he said, I also need you to know I don't need you to be there for everyone. That there are times in people's lives where I need them to come down to their knees and it's only then that they will see me. So whatever this false expectation is, yes, I need you to show up. Yes, I need you to look, but you don't have to be there for everyone. And then he said, I have a question for you. These people that you are so concerned about within conflict, if they are actually okay with me being God and walking with me being God, but don't necessarily come back to you in friendship, can you be okay with that? And that's where I was like, I don't know. And I have a huge journey ahead of me. And it was a turning point for me, I think, with other things going on, to look at who is God? Who am I? What is my identity if it's not winning people over or being a rescuer or what, then what is my identity? And it sent me on this huge journey. Right. Yeah. We've both been on like a parallel journey and a journey together of, I know for me, the way I would say it is, oh my goodness, I have these beliefs in God that I don't actually experience much or didn't until I started being intentional about it. And then for me, the idea that as a lead pastor, as a preacher, I could proclaim a love of God for others that I struggled to encounter myself. I guess I'd say we've both been on a journey of freedom. Yes. And for you, that led you to graduate school. Your training is as a K-8 school teacher. Mm And you taught school over a number of years. Yeah. You were kind of famous as a teacher that if a boy like was flooded and angry, rather than sit him down to talk, even as a teacher, you intuitively knew to take him up for a walk around the track. I remember as your young husband being just blown away by all of these little tricks that you had to help unlock people's emotional Mm -hmm. capacity. And so at some point you put down school teaching and you picked up counseling. Mm -hmm. What was it like to enroll as a mom of teenagers in graduate school? Yeah, brave, overwhelming. Thanks for that, by the way. That was kind of you. Yeah, I was scared out of my mind and I really wanted to do it. And I think I was more intimidated at being able to write papers. Yeah, I remember that. Right? You did not like a blank screen. Oh, my first paper. And it's funny because I've talked to a lot of people who have gone back to graduate school now at older in life. And I remember just staring at that blank screen with this inner battle of, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be good enough, like all of this over and over. And then you start typing and you start writing and you learn. But even that was a journey. It was hard. We had to let go of some things that were on our plate. It was an emotional process. And I think I came home wondering if I had every single diagnosis as I learned about them. I remember that too. That's (laughs) right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I am a slow processor, put a lot of time, but then it sinks in. So I felt like I had the gift of time to let it sink into my core. 
it's made a difference. Yeah. So now you have clients that you see an hour at a time or an hour mm-hmm. and a half at a time. Some of them are followers of Jesus. Some mm-hmm. of them are not. Some of them profoundly wounded by the church. A lot of your work and our work is people who the church has hurt and they have to integrate their faith with that. Mm-hmm. And then you also have people, we'll talk about this more in another episode, but they'll fly in and spend a week with you yeah, where they're just really going deep on a soul care intensive. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to come back to, because you actually asked, when did you experience grace? Yeah. And I get emotional, but it's just. I'm not comfortable I'm unless you're about. crying on my podcast. I know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Neither is anybody else now. I had a turning point. I think, you know, you had alluded to the deaths that we experienced yeah. in our church. So we had a period of, I think it was actually like seven years where we lost four young dads in our church. Four, five years, we lost four dads. And it was seven years that we lost five people. Yes. And that's a lot of loss yeah. for us personally and for a young church. And so when we lost the chairman of our elders, yeah. um, and this was the third time that we had experienced this with our church. 14 years ago this April. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was a good friend yeah. and family friends. And you're just deeply grieving. The church was also so tired by grief. Yeah. In fact, we had this huge outward focus, and we had to move to turning inward to just care and nurture each other. And I remember that we had changed our, so he passed away. And then that Sunday, we changed our service to fit a grieving congregation, as you do, especially when you're a small church. And I was supposed to lead the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Mm. And I remember standing up with um, the band and people that were there and beginning. And I think I got one, like one line out and I could not utter the words that is well with my soul because it was not. Mm. And um, instead of forcing myself through, I allowed myself just to be quiet and be vulnerable. And then in my quietness, I heard everybody singing so loud the words that I so badly wanted to cling to. And it was a moment of it's hard for things to be well with our soul. There's so much I don't understand. And I am standing here with a body that in their graciousness and humanness can actually be and represent Christ's love while in worship. It was a turning moment for me of relying on a body, understanding grace of God, and feeling a sense of healing. Yeah. When I go around and do my workshops, you know, it's funny that I'm telling you as if you don't know this, but I'm really talking to these people. (laughs) You know, one of the things I'm trying to help leaders realize is your job isn't to care for everybody. Uh Your job is to create a culture where everybody is cared for, including you. That's kind of what you're describing. Sometimes when you're a spiritual leader, you can sing, and sometimes you need to be surrounded by people who are singing. Every single one of us. Yeah. I found that too as a preacher. Like sometimes I'd be preaching by faith and sometimes I'd be preaching by passion. And there'd be times where I'd be preaching on fumes and I'm trusting the faith of the congregation to bolster me. Yes. And in that is, we come back to the name of the podcast, like Mm. in that, that's what it means to be able to be human and feel human and also be connected in our humanness with a God who's bigger. Like it's a powerful 
Yeah. It really is. Yeah. We're That's trying nice. to encourage people to relax into being human sized. Most of us kind of striving and we don't even realize it. And we're living out of a story. Like the last episode, I really talked about the story we tell ourselves and the nature of every belief. And mm-hmm. even a lot of, as you've shared your journey, that's what we're sitting on. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap up, a couple of things for the audience, and I'm going to ask you if you'd mm-hmm. lead us out on these. We're going to encourage you this week, for those of you watching and listening, is there an area of reactivity in your life that you're working on? That's the first question. Is there an area of reactivity that you're working on. The beautiful thing about reactivity is how predictable it is. If you mm. just take it, have a little think about it, you realize like you and I, Lisa, we will be people pleasers the rest of our life. Yeah. And we can mitigate it, but we're always going to be that. So rather than spiritualizing and shooting, we can say, oh, Wednesday, I've got this meeting. I bet I'll be prone to want to please. I'm going to actually relax into God's presence. So let's put you on the hot seat. Mm -hmm. Is there an area of reactivity that you're currently working on in real time? One of my reactivity behaviors shows up in avoidance. And so if I think there's going to be a lot of tension or especially with people close to me, I can avoid for a while the hard conversations and think and spiral on how people are going to react and how to do it best and so I caught myself even doing that this morning with a family member. Does the family member's name rhyme with Steve? <laughs> it does not okay. sound like Schneeve. Okay, no. good. Um, and so I caught myself like going there and fake conversation, all this, and thought, no, you have the presence of God. You are coming in love and you're coming out of caring. Mm. Go walk into it. I think my new phrase is walk into it, yeah, you know, okay. and do it you know what? It went fine. And at the end of the day, the connection was seen. And so I've been just in several different areas of my life trying to notice when am I avoiding and for what reason? And what is it that I can hold on to for the strength and the reasons I need to walk in and then walk into it? That's good. Well, and you made the regrettable vow a few months ago to say yes to God. And so God's been throwing a lot of things away (laughs) (laughs) since then. I kind of enjoy watching that too. Okay, so the first thing for our audience watching or listening, what's a reactivity trigger that you're aware of that you want to work on? It's really Mm -hmm. important for us to remind people that most of the time you're going to be reactive Mm -hmm. and some of the time you're going to relax into God's presence. We have found if you can be aware of God 10 or 15% of the time, it can really transform your life. So we do want to say, Don't expect 100% out of yourself. We both get reactive all the time. Mm -hmm. But once in a while, we'll notice it, like you mentioned with this phantom family member, and that you did the opposite and a beautiful result came out of it. Mm -hmm. I guess we should also say sometimes it makes things worse. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It makes things more chaotic. Yeah. But the second thing I'm going to throw your way Mm -hmm. is those of you watching and listening, what is a life-giving habit that you can cultivate this week? Mm. And sometimes the best life-giving habits are two or three minutes. What we mean by a life-giving habit is that it's a gift that God has given you that helps you enjoy life where you can give thanks to God. What's a life-giving habit that you're enjoying nowadays? Mm-hmm. Well, let me set it up to say that I feel like in this season of life, when we have more deadlines and, and there's more on our plate, mm. that I feel like I'm trying to get as much information ingrained as me as I can. 
And so I have found a habit of um, listening to audiobooks, listening to podcasts, listening to classes that I've signed up for, and trying to fill myself with things, information, again and again and again, and that I have lost the beauty of weaving connection with people in short phone calls even mm. into my day that I believe the lie that I have a really good conversation. I need to have an hour phone call. I need to set this time aside to really be with someone and for us to really chat. And so this past week, I have, I think four times this week, had phone calls with people that are just life-giving mm. and I've turned off the information gathering and allowed myself to connect with the people that make me laugh, that can talk depth and quickly and it's reciprocating. Yeah. And it has been fantastic. Yeah. And something that's fun too, if you have a friend or a family member, is you can kind of see them light up yeah. when you've discovered. So I'm going to tell you a life-giving thing I've noticed. The Morning Glory Almond Milk Latte. Yes. Right there. Right there. It's like that's become oh, a new discovery. So we actually do yeah. encourage people to make a life-giving list and keep adding things because mm -hmm. you forget. When you get reactive, you forget. Yeah. Okay. Lisa, welcome to the new Being well, Human. Well, I want to hear about your life-giving Oh, my turn? Life-giving lately. Okay. I'm really liking this one. Our mutual friend, Brian, reached out. We have kind of a friend group where there's five couples, I think. Mm -hmm. And Brian reached out to all the gents and he's like, let's do a Bible reading plan. I've noticed my own journey with the mm. Bible that ebbs and flows through the professional side of it. I also love it. So Bible reading plans for me have been sometimes amazing and sometimes difficult. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And he's like, we're just going to read a chapter of the New Testament a day, which I've been able to pull off. And then every Friday we're texting each other what God's saying and what we're learning. Mm. I'm having so much fun with that because these are life-giving friends. So it's like a double bonus for me. It's the reading, but it's the shared. It's the body of Christ. Body of Christ. Yeah, it's the shared, the friends. Yeah. When I see a text from Kevin, I'm like, oh, I love that guy. Yeah. So it is that kind of double. Brian, love you too. But that would be an example yeah. uh, of life giving. So good. I think that's it. What do you reckon? Do we miss anything huge? That's it. Okay, folks. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you mm -hmm. next time. Being Human is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced and edited by Matt Stevens. The associate producers are Mackenzie Hill and Ray Gilliam, with music by Dan Phelps, mix engineer Kevin Morris, and graphic design by Amy Jones. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.